people will say to me often to this day, I'd love to take a walk with your mama. And I say, no, you wouldn't. You want to take a walk with the woman on the pages of that book, but not my mother. <laughs> you know how much dead time you have to put in to get that woman on the page? I, like everybody of my generation, grew up thinking I was going to write the great American novel. To call me a Jewish girl was one thing, but to call me a neurotic Jewish girl was actually flattering. There were these liberationist chicks gathering on Bleecker Street. I want you to go out and find them and tell us who they are. So I went out and I found Susan Brown Miller, Kate Miller, T. Grace Atkinson, all of them. I'm Adam Schatz, and you're listening to Myself with Others, a podcast about the life of ideas on and off the page. My guest today is the writer Vivian Gornick. Vivian and I have been friends for nearly two decades. She's one of the great New York writers, and it's become impossible to think of literary New York without thinking of her voice, tough, no-nonsense, and salty, with inflections of a vernacular that can be traced back to her childhood among immigrant Jews in the Bronx in the 1940s, an experience she recounts in her classic 1987 memoir, Fierce Attachments. In the last few years, Vivian has become something of an icon, especially for young feminists. Not because she is a dispenser of advice or political lessons, but because her work documents the journey of her own consciousness, the sometimes painful passage from experience to reflection. Whether she's writing about politics, a novel, or herself, her gaze is unflinching and unsentimental, especially in her writings on love, passion, and loneliness. And yet there is something moving and even inspiring in the tribute that she's paid to the place where she's found what she calls her lifesaver, her writing desk. Welcome to Myself with Others, Vivian. Thank you. Vivian, most people think of you as a Manhattanite, uh, which you've been for most of your life. But you grew up in the outer boroughs in the Bronx, longing, as you've written, to arrive in the center of the world in Manhattan. Can you talk a little bit about what the Bronx was like for you in the, in the 1940s and early 1950s? For one thing, it was everything was safe, cheap, and free, or free. It was a world where people like me walked through it um, unthinkingly. However, it was dull, joyless, and defeatist. That was the best of Jewish working-class immigrant life. Every single person I knew, or well, whatever, no, wanted to get out. No one ever imagined marrying, looking for a job, staying in the neighborhood. And then you'd move on. Yeah, ours was a brief tenure. Now, your, your, your mother came to the States from Russia when she was a little girl, but she spoke English without an accent and right. was known for the certainty of her manner. She'd refer to people either as developed or undeveloped. <laughs> right. And I, I sense that in her use of language, she seized a kind of power and authority that she might not otherwise have had. And I wondered if that was an early lesson for you as a writer. Well, it was a piece of wonder and puzzlement for me as a growing person, because at home, she was full of this authority unearned, but utterly assumed authority. Uh, and that, I think, that impressed me very early with both parents. Now, in Fierce Attachments, you write, sometimes I think I was born saying, that's ridiculous. Now, I, I laughed when I read that line again recently, Vivian, because it reminded me of a conversation that you and I had not so long ago about a mutual acquaintance who had failed to appreciate what you said was the best part of you, namely your judgmental side. And I sense this is also something you, you might have inherited from your mother. Uh, you know, I'm going to quote you again. You write, that dismissiveness of hers will be the last thing to go. In fact, it will never go. It is the emblem of her speech, the idiom of her being, that which establishes her in her own eyes. Did I write that? You did write that. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> yes, so true. Uh, the dismissiveness 
that my mother was famous for and that I recognized in myself by the time I was writing Fierce Attachments was something I, of course, I began to shrink from. And when I recognized it in myself, I was appalled. That's, of course, you know, me in the therapeutic culture and me, anybody after that. I used it in Fierce Attachments. It was one of the first times I was conscious of making a virtue of a necessity. Since I had grown up that way, finally, yes, that's what writing, <laughs> that's what writing, that was the gift writing gave me. It allowed me to, uh, to redeem myself by making fun of this um, appalling way of growing up. You know, and yet for all the strength that that your mother and others in the neighborhood drew from that kind of dismissiveness, from that scornful judgment, your mother uh, felt she'd never really been able to live her life. And, and you say at one point that she enjoys thinking, only she has never known it. Now, that's a beautiful homage to a woman who, who did think deeply and, and who expressed her thoughts with real confidence, at least in her neighborhood and around her family, but who never really had the privilege of knowing that she, in fact, was a thinker. So at the same time, it's a deeply sad idea. Yes, uh, that passage uh, was became dear to me because it was one of the first times in uh, writing that book that I realized that every single one of the walks, you know, the book is divided between passages about the past and walks that are being taken currently. Every single one of the walks had to contain a moment of revelation. And it was writing that sentence that made me realize uh, this was to be one of the characteristics of, of the book. I think that's the passage, too, in which she says, the unhappiness is so alive today, right? I think I remember that. And she said, it wasn't for us. And I say, it has to be in order for there to be change. But she would say things like that. She, given her druthers, she drifted without thinking, you know, she would drift in her mind as, as everybody does when they're not living a deliberate life, when they're not thinking deliberately, when they're not consciously prizing thinking about the day. But then she'd say something very opinionated and barbed and insightful. Exactly. If I asked a direct question, that was her value, really. You got a straight answer. She was great in that way. In the romance of American communism, you have one of the great opening lines, which is that before you ever knew you were Jewish, you knew you were a member of the working class. Now, your, your parents were communists, and communism seems to have been, for them, a kind of almost a replacement for, for Judaism. Did you, did you have the feeling growing up in that little neighborhood in the Bronx that you were on a stage of sorts for the great world drama of the class struggle? How, how did how did you live your parents' communism? Oh, um, until I was about 16, how did I live it? I'd open up my eight-year-old mouth in class and say, uh, the workers deserve a portion of the profits that come from their work. And the teacher would say, if you don't like America, you should go back where you came from. <laughs> and then I would go home and tell my mother this. And my mother would say, how many times have I told you, do not speak in school about what you hear here in the house? And I would and I would remember it, not with fear or trepidation, but like, oh, yes, that's a convention in this household. I forgot about it. I mean, I, I did that. You were born in 1935. So when you're 15, you have the, the Rosenberg trial. I mean, were you were your parents at all anxious, given that communists were, you know, hunted down, chased, monitored by the FBI? It was quite dangerous. And I wondered, did, was, did that yeah. did that also figure in what they told you? Yes, it did. But people like my parents, even though the Rosenbergs were absolutely of the same class, somehow or other, lots of people of our class did not fear that we would be come at, that we, we would uh, be pursued, that we would, what they did fear, the anxiety was my brother wouldn't be able to pursue a profession, that, my, that we would be penalized. When my brother graduated from graduate school, and this was like the late 50s, 
he applied for a, a fellowship at the National Bureau of Standards in Washington and underwent a security clearance. They went, the, the FBI went back to every single neighborhood we'd ever lived in, every apartment we'd ever lived in, called people who had been our neighbors, knocked on doors of people we hadn't seen in 20, 30 years. And every one of those people called my mother and said, Gornick, what's happening with Freddie? My mother said, why? She says, the FBI is here. My mother said, what did you tell them? Nothing. I should talk to the FBI. So that was the anxiety, not the fear that we would end up like the Rosenbergs. That you'd end up, you'd end up financially ruined. You wouldn't yeah. be able to yeah. pursue what there was of the American dream. Oh, yeah. The fear around that was very substantial. You were 13 when your father died. And in Fierce Attachments, you say that Papa had never been so real to me in life as he was in death. You don't say much about the impact of his death in your life at the time, though. He, the, the book is very much about the women in your life. Yeah. You know, I never cried for my father until I was 28 years old. She so dominated the whole scene. She filled the whole world. But if you can believe this, when I was 28 years old, I stepped off the 23rd Street Crosstown bus at 9th Avenue one day, and suddenly I broke into tears over my father. It was really like a Freudian moment from out of nowhere. I suddenly broke through what had been, you know, sealed off emotions all, all my life because my mother filled the world. I mean, she just, she, she, this was her, um, this is really, of course, what is meant by, you know, mother domination, <laughs> mother. Uh, yeah. Somebody once gave me a ceramic plate around which was written, I may be dead, but I'm still your mother. <laughs> so that was, that was it. My father might be dead, but she was still my mother. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, he had no, powerful influence on me. I idealized him in memory. And I remember once being asked, what was my definition of character? And I thought of my father and I said, my father was had character because he, he did not make us pay for his disappointments. Mm. And your mother had kind of set him up in your imagination too, as the man oh. whom she had loved and who had loved her. Um, and, had, and it was an idealized portrait. She was known far and wide as a romantic, as the woman of the Bronx, who was the, you know, like a, uh, who, who had a fairy tale uh, idea of love that enlarged her life, that gave her significance. And she said to me very angrily uh, during one of our knockdown drag, drag out fights, it was the, it was, I had nothing but your father's love. It was the only sweetness in my life. Another person who marked you very intensely was one of your neighbors, uh, a woman you call Nettie, Fierce Attachments. She's the only non-Jew in that neighborhood. She's a Ukrainian immigrant married to a Jew who was shot to death in a quarrel in a bar in a port somewhere on the Baltic Sea. And so she's left there alone with her child while supporting herself as a lace maker and, and then as a prostitute. Now, she's the first person um, in Fierce Attachments, who makes you aware of the allure and the danger of sensuality and eroticism. And she's the subject of some of the book's dreamiest, most memorable passages. At one point, Vivian, you describe her walk as slow and deliberate. Her walk insisted on the flesh beneath the clothes. It said, this body has the power to make you want Every pair of eyes on her was met by her own, wide, innocent, taunting. She knew of no other way to make herself feel better than to make people want her. She knew that when she swayed her hips, promise stirred in the groin. She knew this. It was all she knew. She thought this knowledge gave her power. You write of only wanting to see her, of wanting to touch her, of being aroused by her touch and her presence. But just as at the moment that you're touching her, and I'm quoting, suddenly terror prickled on my skin. These are remarkable passages, Vivian. I'm, I'm wondering, what do you think you were so frightened of in Nettie? Because she was presenting a very different image 
of love and the romantic to your your mother? Oh, I can tell you easily what I what I was afraid of. I mean, I felt erotically aroused. I was aroused by her, uh, and and when she held me in her in her um, embrace, I really got scared. I was like, yeah, I was thirteen years old uh, when this was happening. Yes, she was powerful. I mean, she she was like, you know, some shining presence in the Bronx in all that and all that dull street. If if that passage was was um, transferred to the screen, you would have Nettie outlined in light, you know, shining light on a dull black and white street. She was she looked like Greta Garbo and she was that. And it was just as I said, I couldn't write this today. I mean, when I wrote it, I was just far enough away, but just still close enough to really feel all those things. I don't. I couldn't have written the the, the fullness of those passages today. Uh, I'm too far away from it. She was hypnotic. I mean, she was. You know, El, what's her name? Elena Ferranti would have done her justice. Um, she she was like a character in on you know some Naples slum street. Although I, I mean I think I would say that you did her justice. Yeah, I, I think She's so an, too. You you did it. I mean I think Elena Fronte would have done a very good job too. Yeah. But you got yeah. there. You got there first. I, I, in a way, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, the Bronx was your Naples. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Oh yeah, that's why I know that the Ferranti novels are not feminists they were about the neighborhood it's the neighborhood that's the main character in those books and the inability to get away from that neighborhood yeah no no definitely you know, you know there's a funny moment where you and Nettie are talking about stories of what you'd like to happen now her stories are invariably about love but you at 13 have very different things in mind you would say wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a flood or an epidemic or a revolution? And even though I'm this little kid, they find me and they say to me, you speak so wonderfully. You must leave the people, lead the people out of this disaster. I never daydreamed about love or money. I always daydreamed. I was making eloquent speeches that stirred 10,000 people to feel their <laughs> lives and to act. Now, it's like you want to be Moses or I don't know, Rosa Luxemburg. Emma Goldman will do. <laughs> Emma Goldman. Okay. Yeah, actually, that's who I wanted to be. Emma Goldman. <laughs> so your your parents were communists, but you wanted to be an anarchist. Yeah, I didn't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> and and yet the the kind of writing that you would become best known for moves readers one at a time. It's not speechifying. You were clearly not destined to have a relationship with the masses. That was no. your childhood fantasy. Right. If I'd grown up in the 40s and the early 50s and been a grown woman, I certainly would have been one. I would have been a soapbox speaker on a corner on the Lower East Side, for sure, for sure. I would have had no problems announcing the uh, terribleness of uh, the treachery of capitalism and uh, that the system was the only reality in the world. After the revolution, we'll think about all these other things. But now all that matters is class struggle. Oh, I can see myself easily. And I'm really sorry that I didn't, you missed <laughs> I that, didn't opportunity. Have that simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you left home for City College, you began finally to experience a kind of liberation from the neighborhood. But it led clearly to feelings of estrangement from your mother, from your people in the Bronx, uh, of no longer being one of them, of being a subversive, even a traitor. Your, your language changed. Suddenly, you were speaking words your mother didn't know. Right. Yeah, it was, it was a shocking experience and one that has been echoed by everyone I know. Uh, you know, they sent us to school and they never dreamed we'd come back speaking words they didn't know. And when we did... They were shocked and horrified and scared. My mother was always yelling at me, speak English. We all understand English in this house. While I was using words like imperative six times in three sentences, stuff like that. When you were at City College, your sense of, of language and of the imagination clearly expanded. But another revelation was sex. Your mother, at one point, she confronts you. Have you have you tasted this man? I think yeah. that was her phrase. Have you tasted and, him? <laughs> and the sense we get in Fierce Attachments and, and in your other writings is that in this period of the late 50s and early 1960s, you experienced a kind of, a, it was a bit of an ordeal. I mean, in the sense that 
there was a kind of quixotic search for fulfillment through love as your mother had counseled. You, you were looking for something in relationships with men. Oh, absolutely. I was, in terms of the, uh, me and the girls that I knew at City, you know, my friends, I was a retard. I mean, everybody else was, was much quicker on the draw than I was because I was made so anxious about sleeping with somebody whom I wasn't sure I loved, 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 you know, my mother, you can't lie down with anyone unless you really love him. Well, Ma, how do I know when I really love him? Just because I want to get laid. <laughs> Just, well, I you I know, mean, I want to make love. Does that mean I really love him? It was terrible. Other girls I knew broke quickly with that broke very quickly. I was the last one to lose her virginity of my set. And it was Bessie. It was my mother who was in my head. I always saw her floating above me and looking down at me and saying, you whore, you know, (laughs) and that lasted a long time. I mean, it didn't stop me, but it was there. And it was, it it certainly impeded just pure pleasure, if nothing else. Mm. It's in the late 60s that you really begin to come into your own as a journalist and discover yourself as a writer. Now, these, of course, are the years of the new left, of civil rights, black power, gay liberation, feminism. And you arrived at the paper that was the tribune of writers who sympathized with these movements, uh, the Village Voice. Uh, Your editor uh, was Dan Wolf. If I'm not mistaken, he referred to you in your face as a neurotic Jewish girl. Right. And yet, when you recounted this anecdote to me, it was clear he wasn't trying to discourage you. Can you recall that story? He, yeah, oh, certainly. I can recall the meeting. To call me a Jewish girl was one thing, but to call me a neurotic Jewish girl was actually flattering because we all use the word neurotic, not at all um, in a condemning way. How was it praise? Oh, she's so neurotic. Instead of, oh, she's such a drag. <laughs> oh, so she, she's such a pain in the ass. So neurotic at the Village Voice in the 1960s was something of a, a badge of honor. So it meant that you had something going on upstairs, basically. Yes. Now, and then in the unspoken part was, if you can convince me that you can use your neurosis to hit on something culturally uh, of interest, I'll give you a job. That was it, essentially. Now, one of your your first pieces was a report, very personal and opinionated in style, uh, overtly subjective, um, but also analytic, about a panel at the Village Gate about racism. The the speakers included uh, the tenor saxophonist and activist Archie Shep and a very fiery Leroy Jones, who was just about to become Amir Baraka, poet, playwright, militant. This was quite a remarkable event in terms of what it expressed about a new and radical Black style and some of the growing divisions between the Black power movement and white liberals. It seemed to help you to find a new way of writing journalism that you came to call personal journalism. What happened at that event? Why was it so important to you? Well, you know, the way I experienced that event was what was happening among all the people who did become personal journalists, which means that we were taking a new angle on quite conventional political struggles. You'll remember Tom Wolfe's famous piece on, you know, Leonard Bernstein and Sheik. The radical Sheik, right. Well, well, that's essentially what he was doing and Joan Didion was doing in the Haight-Ashbury. I discovered myself doing that night at that, um, at, at that event. So there was a room full of white middle class liberals and radicals, people active in the civil rights movement. And they get up there and Jones took over the evening and he said, essentially, he called um, whites au phase. He was not there to applaud them for their good works. Uh, He was there to draw a line and to tell us to get out of his movement. And he said, you au phase, blood is going to run in the seats of the theater of revolution. And guess who's sitting in those seats? And the whole place went up in flames and people yelling and screaming. And this one lone voice, which I use, 
Leroy, I paid my dues. You know, I paid my dues. Some Southerner, some cracker was there in the middle midst of all of us. And uh, that just drove him even more. And as I said, what flashed on me immediately was he's confusing class and race because he kept saying, when we get there, we're going to do it differently. And I knew that there was no there to get to that. You know, you didn't get there unless you became whatever it was we were, that that that, that was the meaning of where we were, that we were being what, what we had longed to become, which was white middle class liberals. And so I was, but I was afraid of him. He was frightening. He was really, for a little Jewish girl from the Bronx, he was terrifying. So I went home and I had a, I lived in a basement apartment on Charles Street and I had a manual typewriter, which my mother had given me at 16. And I sat up all night typing this piece. First, I described it. Then I commented, then I analyzed, then I pulled it all together. I didn't even know I was doing all this, but it was my impulse and I sent it over the transom to the Village Voice. Dan Wolf called me up in the morning and said, who the hell are you? And I said, I don't know. You tell me. And that was, the, 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 that was really the beginning. It took a long time for the beginning to come to an end. <laughs> but, but it was the beginning. In the early 1970s, Vivian, you found yourself in the Middle East. You were in a kibbutz. You were also in Egypt. You fell in love for a time with an Egyptian man who was the subject of your first book. Uh, not many people are aware, I think, that you uh, reported yeah. from abroad. What did you learn from those experiences? You and I spoke recently about sexual relations on the kibbutz, which you told me were not a model of enlightenment or for that matter of eroticism, more like couplings among children. So <laughs> what, 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 was your, what was your time in the Middle East like? Oh, you mean as far as sex is concerned? No, just generally. I mean, because you, you spent you spent you spent about, I think, what was it, about six months in the Middle East? I spent six months in Egypt. And then a few years later, I spent six months in uh, Israel. I, I went to Egypt under contract to write a book about Egyptians without politics. And in the course of it, of course, sex uh, came into it. You know, <laughs> naturally, it was I was a young woman. Um I slept with a number of men and I talked to endless numbers of women and got a picture of um, the sex life, which was full of passion and repression. The repression was fantastic, but they had lived with it for a millennium. And at one point, I knew a woman who was married to a man twice her age. It would have been an arranged marriage. She had many children. She was now 40, very, very pretty woman. And she was sleeping with a man who was also married, and uh, everybody knew if she was discovered, she could be thrown out uh, on her ass. She would never see her children again. Her parents wouldn't take her back in because they were just as traditional as her husband. And uh, I said to her, why are you taking such a chance? And she said, for the feeling. One must live for the feeling. I cannot live without the feeling. So that was the reality, which is everybody's reality from time immemorial. The women I knew who had abortions without their husbands ever knowing it were legion. So within that context, I and then I had my own personal experiences and and the men that I did sleep with, I did find um, repressed, insecure and repressed, lovely, sweet, you know, and in Israel, the same. But Israel, it was, uh, you know, once in a room full of women in Israel, I was like I threw a bomb into the middle. I said, what's with sex in this country? And one of them who had been abroad, she had studied in London and she lived in Russia. She, so she knew the world. There was this silence. And then she said, forget it. Wait till you get back home. <laughs> in the late 1960s, Vivian, while you were developing your voice as a journalist, you were also throwing yourself into feminist politics, radical feminist yes. politics. Yes. In your new collection, uh, Taking a Long Look, there's an extraordinary essay called Simply Consciousness. And it's a dialogue of women at a consciousness raising event of the kind that was held throughout this country by many women. Right. And they're getting together to vent about their oppression, but in that shared expression and release of pent up anger and frustration, there's also uh, exuberance, there's humor, 
um, in this solidarity. Was feminism for you what communism had been for your parents, uh, by which I mean uh, an ideology and a vision that interpreted and spoke to your experience of oppression? Was it something different? How would you compare it to the, 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 the politics that your parents lived by? Oh, absolutely. You just hit the nail on the head. It was it was equal for me. For me, it was my generation for about a good, I don't know, 15 years. It was glorious uh, being a feminist. The consciousness raising groups were the major source of discovery for this. It was the, the conversation in which you saw truly the meaning of the personal is political. Every single consciousness raising group gave itself the task of repeating its own experience with an eye to making large political sense of it or historical sense, uh, feminist sense, sexist sense. And that was like, that was our contribution to, to world politics. It was, it was Freud and Marx come together. It was us seeing ourselves as a class and then using the technique of psychoanalytic inspection to say, gee, when he did this, I did that. I never even realized it or something like that. One woman once said to me, Gee, we went around the whole room and we asked uh, about the origins of everybody's marriage. And, you know, gee, the word love never came up once. <laughs> there were these things. And you know, this was a group of middle class housewives in Westchester County whom I was interviewing. The important thing was the note of wonder in her voice when she said this. It had never occurred to any of them that they had married for a whole lot of reasons, but, you know, Love was not really one of them, but that was the least of it. It was all the ways in which we saw the way we entered the world and the places that we occupied in the world. And it was extraordinarily exciting to be a revolutionary feminist in those years was really, it was like, we really thought we were on the world stage. Was there a, a particular moment, a kind of catalytic moment where you realized this movement speaks to me the way that communism did to my parents? Oh, it was in the very beginning when the Village Voice sent me out to uh, report on, as they so infelicitously said, these liberationist chicks. <laughs> That's what they called it in the, at the Village Voice. He said, I want you to go out. There were these liberationist chicks gathering on Bleecker Street. I want you to go out and find them and tell us who they are. So I went out and I found... Susan Brown Miller, Kate Miller, T. Grace Atkinson, uh, Myrna Lamb, I, all of them. They were uh, Shalamith Firestone. And they all talked to me and they all and I heard the same thing. I'm sure they said many things. All I heard was women by nature do not take their brains seriously. That was the one thing I heard. And it steadied me. It just steadied me. I could never have put together such a phrase in my head without listening to all of them. It was just like when I was interviewing communists and they all uh, spoke about the moment when, um, you know, when Marx hit them, there was the moment. And, and it, Arthur Kessler said, it was like music and air and light bursting across the top of my head. And I would never see the world again the same. And I felt that when I wrote that piece, I wrote the next great moment in history is theirs. <laughs> and it's interesting also that I wrote theirs, not ours. It took a long time for it to become ours. If you read The Second Sex, you see that shockingly throughout. It's all theirs. She's not a feminist. She's writing without sympathy to condemn the male world for sure and the world but with scorn and contempt for women and no sympathy. And then when it becomes ours, then it's a movement. See, the second sex did not spawn a movement, but Americans spawned a movement because it became ours. You later wrote uh, extensively about the unthinking sexism and braggadocio that was so much a part of the so-called Jewish American novelists who emerged after the Second World War, Bellow and Roth and, and and Norman Mailer, were you aware of that at the time? Had you had you read their work and responded to that already? Not at all. That's the meaning of rereading, at least in terms of the movement. That was a big thing in the feminist movement that we were rereading the culture. We were rereading our own experience. 
It was like a kaleidoscope. You shook the kaleidoscope. It was the same pieces, but they made a new design. No, no. Imagine me taking Philip Roth to task for Portnoy's complaint. <laughs> it was uh, impossible. Or, Be- or Bello? None of them. I mean, I was... Well, in a sense, it's not so unlike mourning your father. Your mother had had dominated that space, making it impossible to mourn your father. And male power and patriarchy had dominated the imaginative space so much that you couldn't even recognize it. <laughs> Absolutely. I was happy enough to be Jewish. It was enough, you know, that they were putting on the page our experience as, as Jews. That, that was enough. And then, then that he's trashing women. Oh, my God, look at this. <laughs> I didn't see that for years. <laughs> you, you've written a lot about women in the feminist movement and not so much about uh, the different experiences of women within that movement. We were speaking earlier about Nettie and about this powerful sense of attraction that you had towards her. But same-sex desire doesn't really figure in, in your account of feminism, nor, nor race. Once in those early years, I was speaking with other people on the stage of, uh, there was a church on, on 4th Street in the village, but we were speaking at this, and it was a packed, packed hall, and every color woman was there. One after another, we stand up and we make the case, and we're all white, and we're all middle class, and we're all educated. A woman in the audience raises her hand. She's black. And she says, this movement is for you, not for me. My black husband can't get a job and I can't leave Harlem and you are not helping me at all. And I understood her position instantly. And I said to her, "Um, I understand exactly where you are. And you must act out of where you are at the moment. And um, and I know that race dominates, race and class come first for you. But I truly believe I'm standing on the right side of history. And that one day you'll be standing where I am, not I where you are. And that was then was then that I realized all we could do would be ourselves. There was nothing else we could do. If I tried to be anything else. I would come out sounding thin, shallow. I wouldn't have anything to say. So I thought it was best for me to make the case for where I stood in the world. And if that represented other people's experience, then so much the better. Attachments uh, was published in 1987 and still probably your best known work. It was recently hailed by the New York Times as the finest American memoir of the last 50 years. Very powerful book about growing up in the Bronx, about the women who shaped you, about how you came to be the person and the writer you are. I'm wondering, how, how did this book come about? Did you have a sense of what this book would look like when you started out? It's a, it's a memoir. It's rather short, but it has the ambiance and emotional hold of fiction. And and in my view, two of the most memorable characters in American writing of the late 20th century, your mother and Nettie. How did it come about? I, like everybody of my generation, grew up thinking I was going to write the great American novel. I mean, I wanted to be a writer since I was a child, but and I wrote, you know, I wrote this, that, little things, stories, but nothing really gelled. Nothing worked. I couldn't get, I couldn't get them in the room, out of the room. I mean, I was, I went, whenever I tried to write fiction, would just lay there like a dead dog. I couldn't, I couldn't make anything come to life. But I used to tell these stories about Nettie and my mother all the time. And everyone would say, oh, that's a novel. And then I couldn't do it. And then one day in the feminist years, I was telling the same story from after many years of not to a friend. And she said, oh, that's a memoir. And again, it was like light and air burst across my skull. I, I suddenly thought, oh, maybe I can do that. I had a lot of trouble. I wrote 60 pages and I saw that I was at a dead end. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to put together now and then. And I felt it wasn't enough to just tell about then. I mean, I I felt it, but I didn't know how to do it. 
one day my mother called me up and told me this little anecdote about being at a crossing on the street and a little girl starts to cross on the red light. And my mother pulls her back and says, darling, you, you only cross on the green. And the little girl says to my mother, lady, you got the whole thing upside down. And my mother says to me, that kid's not going to make it to eight. You know, she was like seven. And I thought that was funny. And I decided to sit down and write up this little anecdote. But then I thought it wouldn't have any meaning unless I set it up, unless you know who's speaking and to whom she is speaking. And therefore, you'll know why she is speaking. So that's what I did. I gave it context. And at the end, I had gold. I knew that I, I had a structure. I knew that uh, I was going to go back and forth between these two sets of women in the present and in the past. And then I thought, I'm going to make them account for themselves to each other. And that was very exciting. That was a great, very exciting moment when I, I had the structure in my head. And I rewrote everything I had written. And I worked from there on to dramatize that, that insight. The book was hailed as a breakthrough, and uh, not long after, you were in the offices of your publisher, Farrah Strauss and Giroux, uh, when you ran into Susan Sontag, and I think she remarked that, oh, I hear that you know your book, your book is being talked about. Yeah. To tell us about that exchange you had with Sontag, where you, you oh. got a little lesson from Susan. Sontag, to this day, I would probably say, gee, I don't know what it's all about. <laughs> And she said to me, sharp as a tack, don't talk like that. That's the talk of a loser. It had never occurred to me to think of writers in terms of winners and losers. Every encounter I ever had with her went in that direction. But it was true. I was amazed at the attention that Fierce Attachments got. And for six months, I walked around New York feeling like I owned the city. And then life went back to being what it is. <laughs> I have been very grateful for so many people loving that book. And I'm grateful for this, this wave of affection and goodwill that has come my way uh, in the last year or two, and especially now. <laughs> and um, I'm still prone to saying, gee, what's it all about? I mean, <laughs> what is it? What do they see here that I don't? But I try very hard to control that. <laughs> Zantag herself was, the first time I ever met her was at a party given by Joe Chaikin. He was a counterculture actor, director. He was brilliant. He was a little, a little genius. When he was 50 years old, he gave a huge party, invited everybody he'd ever known. And I was invited. I So I come... He opens the door and place is packed and he pulls me in and he says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Susan is here. I want you to meet her. I said, all right. So he pulls me over and and Zantag is leaning back, her arms crossed on her chest and her legs thrust out, extended. And she's surrounded by adoring young men, mostly. And he pushes through and he says, Susan, this is Vivian Gornick. I'd like you to meet her. And Zantag said to me, oh, how odd that I should meet you this evening. I was thinking about you just today. And why, after all, should I think about you? And so I burst out laughing. It's the only reply that you could have then. I mean, what do you do with something like that? You know, this woman is socially bizarre. And so then I said, why were you thinking about me? <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, Vivian, your, your, your mother used to say that love was everything, that a woman's life was determined by love. And it didn't turn out that way for you. In Fierce Attachments, we see you struggling to draw personal satisfaction from a string of relationships with men, only to be overwhelmed or disappointed uh, by the experience of love or sexual pleasure. And uh, these relationships have their highs, but they also have some terrible lows. And the, the lesson seems to be that for you, at least, fulfillment or isn't to be found where your mother looked for it. You, you found your salvation at the desk and work and within. Do you think feminism helped you arrive at that insight? Do, do you think of this as something with a, a general application for, for women of your generation or women, or do you see it as something that was just true for you? It was true for me. And what was true for me became elucidated through the politics of the time 
They were already in place. I was the only kid on the block who every time I said that's ridiculous, I was saying that when people were cynical about love, I was never too clear about marriage. I echoed my mother and Colette. And my mother was, love was the most important thing in a woman's life. Nothing, nothing, nothing could match it. And if you lived without it, if you lived without passion. You were lost. Yeah. Your life is worthless. Nevertheless, I never really wanted to get married. And I put the two together very late in life and only through feminism. So in other words, it was all in place. I was what I was already. I mean, I was in my 30s. Uh, by then, twice married and twice divorced. And it was only through feminism that I I had a clue to how to begin to analyze my own actions, my own. Um, I was always in a state of uh, dissatisfaction. I mean, if your mother was the romantic, in a sense, you're the critic of of that kind of of the romantic and a debunker of it i mean you write at one point enthralled to the intensity generated by a passion we invest love with transformative powers imagine ourselves to be made new even whole under its influence but the fact that you so often question this illusion at times reminds us of the illusion's power and the the spell it casts and i'm wondering do you ever miss the drug (laughs) Sure, I do. And I'm probably heir to it. If I if I met someone who felt, you know, uh, immensely sexually attracted, erotically attracted, I'm sure I'd be the same fool I always was. You know, in other words, I'm sure I would fall into the old obsessive state. But I, I'm positive. I'm positive that I ha- have it in me. And I see now that those feelings are there until you die. They are absolutely there till you die. That I'm convinced of. I could fall in love at 60. I did fall in love as if I was 25. I haven't had that experience in a while, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just there. The question is, what do you do with it? And to, to how much do you drown in it or deal with it? Because it's, it is not what it promises to be. I mean, it seems to me that what replaces love in your work uh, is not just it's not just the work itself, but friendship. Um, The Odd Woman in the City includes this unforgettable portrait of your friendship with Leonard, a a gay man who recently passed away. And you write, my friendship with Leonard began with me invoking the laws of love, the ones that involve expectancy. We are one. I decided shortly after we met, you are me, I am you. It is our obligation to save each other. It took years for me to realize this sentiment was off the mark. What we are, in fact, is a pair of solitary travelers slogging through the country of our lives, meeting up from time to time at the outer limit to give each other border reports. So it's a touching passage because it's this recognition of the inherent separation in friendship. Yeah. Also, it, it is um, the hunger, the desire, the conviction when you're young, especially that intimacy will overcome all the rough edges of your own personality. That intimacy is you know, through love. Let's say love produces intimacy, which is not always true either. But if you achieve intimacy, that it will make your personality less of what it is in its negative aspects, if you know what I mean. In other words, Leonard and I, we bonded around our grievances in life. So does that make us less grievance ridden? (laughs) Did that make us able to overcome our grievances and be better friends? No, it didn't. What held us together was this extraordinary recognition of of all of this. It was a very fraught friendship. I did not produce on the page the fraughtness. I chose to, because there were a lot of reasons. One of the most important was that I was using him as an, uh, an instrument of illumination. It was only when I decided to write about that friendship that I thought I could use this to talk about the city and myself. So, but it was not a measure of, uh, it, uh, of our success. But it was a difficult friendship in some ways. We were always disappointing each other. (laughs) Now, I I don't sense, however, that the city has disappointed you. 
what 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 is it about i mean what is it about new york for you what has what you know that your relationship to new york is such a strong part of and a pull of your work what do you feel new york has given you and continues to give you street life <laughs> it's very simple street life street life and a very strong slangy language the vernacular of new york is really strong vivid theatrical revealing full of nuance you walk out in the street and you're immediately charged i never leave manhattan i mean i do come to brooklyn once in a while but but it's only in the streets of manhattan crowded pushing i don't think there's ever a moment i walk out in the streets that some bit of street theater doesn't impinge on my ears or my sight and that's it for me I mean, it's really that simple. You know, if there's any value that seems to be almost a sacred principle in in your writing and your criticism, Vivian, it's authenticity of voice. I mean, it's a quality that you admire in the writings of uh, otherwise very disparate writers from Laurie Siegel to Alfred Hayes, James Baldwin, Naipaul, from Kathleen Collins to Hannah Arendt. But you've also made it clear in your writings on craft that authenticity is itself a, it's a creation. It's, uh, it's an act of artifice. It's something created on the page. Persona you create either has or doesn't have that ring of truth. What makes for the difference in your view between an artificial artifice and an artifice that actually conveys authenticity? Yeah, that's so hard. All you can do is identify it. You know, you see it, you feel it. You feel it and you see it when it's there. It's not so much artifice as it is comp- composition. Mm. You know, the authenticity. Um, when I didn't even realize it, but I, but now I do, and that I was trying to achieve a conversational tone, that I wanted my readers to indeed hear my voice. I wanted to put them behind my eyes and, um, and behind my feelings to see what I saw, feel what I feel. And I chose the words. I struggled to find the words that will mimic what I see and feel. And that's the name of the game. But I look upon it as composition. Not, I'm not producing something artificially uh, natural. I think of it as plucking from the vastness of what goes on in anyone's mind those sentences, uh, the the words, the phrase, the this, the that. There's an essay in your new collection about Simone de Beauvoir, whom we were talking about earlier. It's a very generous essay. It's a celebration of her as an intellectual and thinker. And and what makes it interesting to me in our conversation is that it's a it's a historically minded defense of of a decision that she made to remain with uh, with Jean Paul Sartre. Right. She's been criticized, you know, as you know, by by some younger feminists for playing second fiddle to to Sartre. Yeah. But you argue that she made her decision to remain with Sartre for the sake of her own work, um, even if she might have had a greater love with Nelson Algren or one of her female lovers. Um, she considered work rather than love her. It was her first value. Yeah. So, you know, what strikes me about this conclusion is this historical sensitivity, what you might call the forgivingness of your attitude and appraising a decision that, you know, to some contemporary readers might look like subservience to a domineering man. It's a quality that I don't see very much in criticism these days, where people are often very severely judged for not replicating what we take to be the values of today. Well, I thought I made the argument for why, uh, why I began to see things through her eyes. And mostly it was from the letters that she wrote to Nelson Algren, in which she lays it out. And she says, I could come to you and live in Chicago for love alone, but that's ridiculous. I can't do that. And then she says, I can't leave Sartre. I can't leave Paris. I can't leave the French language. The three are equal. Once I saw that, I gave up the business of her being subservient to uh, Sartre. Besides, she was. I mean, she didn't do what he did. I mean, what she did was marvelous and brilliant and unbelievable and very genuine and individual and blah, blah, blah. But she didn't do what he did. Why would, you know, why would I? I, It's only academics who have pressed that, pushed that. I don't admire that at all. When I read her letters in that book about her affair with Algren, 
I was so taken with with rethinking her from the widest point of view rather than the narrowest point of view. She's not a lovable figure at all. I've been told she was really nasty and lots of people, and I'm no doubt. But that was not my venue at that moment. And I wanted, there was no reason not to see her for a woman born in 1906 to do what she did was good enough. Academic feminists are often guilty of pressing the feminist, uh, the feminist interpretation in places where it doesn't belong, you know, and, and of, of claiming for everyone the right and the wrong of, of position. In this essay that we've talked about earlier, Consciousness, you describe yourself as one of those feminists who are always mourning after the coherent and high-minded leadership of the 19th century women's movement. But then in that same essay, you reconsider and you say, actually, something new and promising is going on here in these consciousness raising groups. And well, now we're in yet another wave of feminism with the emergence of the Me Too movement. The movement's had an extraordinary impact on publishing. It's led to the disgrace and the firing of many high powered men, one of whom is a close friend of yours. How does Me Too look to you? How do the young activists of today strike you in comparison with the women you knew in the late 60s and 70s with yourself? They are were an amazement to me. The Me Too burst on me like a bombshell. I never dreamed uh, that, that it could take this shape. Uh, a revival of the feminist movement could take this shape, nor that it would have the effect that it's had that it would make capitalism go running. I mean, it was a shock to me. All these men have been fired because all the people behind them fear suddenly if they don't do this, they're going to lose business, right? Business is going to go under. So uh, who could have dreamed 40 years ago that we would have such an effect? I mean, it was like payback from another world. This movement is as angry as it is because... They're saying everything we said 40 years ago because it's been too little, very late. So what you conclude is that we set in motion social change, not revolution, social change. And it's the proof of what the movement always was, not a revolutionary movement, but a movement of dissent. This is not a movement in which people want to do, you know, do away with the government and replace a, a whole society and want socialism. That's not true. What everybody wanted was in. We're all wanting the, dem- the democratic promise to fulfill itself. It's very American. And these people now, these en- enraged victims of s- criminals like Harvey Weinstein and all the rest of it. I never dreamed that the world had not changed as much as it had not changed. I never dreamed that sexual harassment was so shockingly alive in the workplace. So what I think of them is they are not political. They're not coming up with anything new. They are, as we say, they're the enraged next two generations who, without knowing it, ingested a great deal of what we said and what we promised. And in its, you know, worldwide, and they've mounted this piece of rage, and it will have a small effect. In other words, things will go back to where they were, but a little less. Now, in your new collection, there's a very moving essay called On Trial for Acting Like a Man. And it's about a 1967 case in France involving a divorced woman, a teacher, who had an affair with a teenage student of hers, a young leftist. He was 17 years old. She was imprisoned and she eventually committed suicide. Now, you write about this case with great poignancy, and the essay concludes with a citation from Chekhov. It is important that a human being never be humiliated. That is the main thing. Now, humiliation lies at the root of many modern political movements, especially feminist, anti-colonial and anti-racist movements, but also working class struggle. It's it's something that you've, I think, been thinking about a lot lately. Yes, it's true. I, I've always been, I mean, I always think about it. It comes back again and again and again. The question of humiliation, the meaning of it. Why is it so powerful? Why does it never go away? Why does nobody ever get used to it? Why is it an idea that never loses uh, potency? I don't have any brilliant thoughts on it. I but I care about it a lot. 
And I was at pains to write a piece about it for a long time. Well, it sounds as though humiliation for you is a kind of primal emotion. It's a feeling of intimate injury that demands redress. Absolutely. Why is that? Why does it matter so much to feel yourself without dignity, with with, with insult? I mean, Lori Siegel and I have this conversation all the time. She is somebody who is constantly saying, why do we need this? Why do we need that? Why can we not live without this kind of regard? Why does it hurt so much to be disagreed with? And, you know, we enjoy ourselves. We have a good time uh, passing a few hours (laughs) with this kind of thing and giving each other lots of examples all the time. But we can't come up with an answer. Is it something that you ever experienced personally in the publishing world over the course of your career as a writer? Every half-baked review makes you, feels humiliating. <laughs> Vivian, has writing gotten any easier for you over the years? Do you feel you're as close to that voice of yours as you did when you started out? Is there anything in your uh, writing life that um, causes you a sense of, of regret? Just in the last year, I've begun to worry about losing articulation, but I do thank God that I'm a writer when that happens. I lose words like everybody else, and when I do, it panics me, something terrible. I worry about losing edge to my mind. Sometimes, like now, listening to things I wrote, you know, all those years ago, I think, Jesus Christ, I couldn't do that today. But then I think, well, maybe I can do other things that will be just as good. I don't know. Uh, It's the only worry I have in the whole world, which is losing, losing articulateness, losing an edge, losing the ability to think. And this past year has not been good for that. I, like everybody else, walk around feeling like I'm in a fog half the time. The streets are empty when they shouldn't be empty, that the uh, stores are boarded up, the restaurant, all of that. It just touches all whatever anxiety you have. And so this is one of them. There's a Philip Roth novel, late Philip Roth novel, one of his worst novels, The Humbling, but it, but it begins with a great line about an actor who realizes he's lost his magic. Oh, how does he realize that? He's lost strength of performance, is that? Yes, exactly. And I think that's what you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. So I keep working, though. I mean, I know the only solution to that is just to keep doing it. We are talking on, I think, the day or the day after you just got some wonderful news and an indication that you have not lost your magic, um, a major award. Yeah. The Wyndham Campbell Award from Yale. Are you familiar with this prize? I am. I am indeed. I'm the nonfiction choice there. I was so shocked out of my wits. Somebody asked me to repeat what I said on the phone. It was like, you know, the Nobel. It was like a joke. And I said, what? You know, when I read tributes to your work by young feminists, I sometimes wonder, are they writing about the same Vivian Gornick? I know. How does it it, (laughs) know is the answer? How does it feel after all these years to become a kind of icon? I mean, do you feel they're reading you correctly? Are they reading someone else? Are they reading another Vivian Gornick? Very often they're reading into me, not out of me, if you know what I mean. Very often. And many of them uh, speak to me either on the screen or on the phone as as they're young feminists. They speak to me as if it was 40 years ago. Do you think a woman has to live alone in order to write? You know how often I get that. Um, So what what Vivian are they talking to? You know, I can imagine you saying, figure it out for yourself. Eat hard, I say. (laughs) What do you tell them? I say, uh, many times I say, these are questions I can't answer, but I, I say, um, I say, uh, no, she doesn't have to live alone in order to write. <laughs> and, you know, I, it's, it's just, it's wearing. So no, they're, they're, they're talking to some image in their heads. I was once at a dinner party many years ago after the book on Egypt was, was published and a woman at the dinner party had read the book and she said, oh, I'm so glad to be having dinner with the writer of that book. And the dinner went on and then halfway through, she got really pugnacious and she said, you don't sound anything like the, like the narrator of that book. <laughs> I said, I'm not. <laughs> 
Or better yet, people will say to me often to this day, I'd love to take a walk with your mama. And I say, no, you wouldn't. You want to take a walk with the woman on the pages of that book, but not my mother. (laughs) You know how much dead time you have to put in to get that woman on the page? (laughs) Vivian, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Adam Schatz and Vivian Gornick and the first episode of Myself with Others, a new podcast produced by Richard Sears. Thank you to Max Cooper and Gareth Lang for providing additional support on this episode. The music in this episode was composed and performed by Richard Sears. For more information, please visit myselfwithothers.com and please subscribe. Mm-hmm.